Welcome to episode number 71 of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and Reformation Roundtable exists as a ministry of Christ Covenant Church, which is located in Lewis County, Washington. If you would like to join us for our weekly worship, you can go to lewiscounty.church. The following is the audio from our Lord's Day worship that took place on Reformation Sunday, October 31st, 2021. We hope you enjoy the sermon, and we hope you join us for Lord's Day worship. Our meditation and preparation for worship this morning comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Let's pray. Father, we come into Your presence with holy fear and hearts ready to worship Your glory. You have made us and all the world around us. Open our eyes in faith to the glory that surrounds us as we meet you in the heavenly places. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please rise with me as we worship the triune God. Today is Reformation Sunday. This is the day that we celebrate the good news that God is sovereign in everything, including our salvation. And because of this, Man is not saved by his own works, but by, but by God's grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, so that no one can boast. This glorious truth had been largely forgotten through the grievous theological errors and corruption found in the Roman Catholic Church 500 years ago. During this time, a young and courageous monk by the name of Martin Luther, being filled with the Holy Spirit, of regeneration, was convicted through Scripture alone that salvation was the work of God and not man, the work of Christ and not through the payment of indulgences. God used Martin Luther to help bring God's people back to a faith that is based on the work of Christ and not the work of man. So where in Scripture did Martin get this idea? Well, here are a few passages. In Deuteronomy 7, we are promised, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the people on the face of the earth. Also in Psalm 66, the psalmist, de- the, the psalmist declares, Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts. Jumping forward to the New Testament, Paul tells us in Titus 3, he says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but, but according to his mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There are dozens of other passages um, one could choose. Um, There's dozens of other passages that I'm sure um, heavily influenced Martin Luther. But perhaps Romans chapter 1 verse 17 impacted him more than any other passage. And that's what this says. For in the gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. God preserved in his word and through his bride, the church, the good news that the just shall live by faith. Good works cannot save us. The law cannot save us. The intercession of the Catholic Church cannot save us. Only Jesus Christ and his perfect work on the cross can save us, which is why we place our faith in him and are counted righteous as a result. This good news gives God alone the glory that he is due. This gospel, this good news reveals to us the incredible graciousness of our king who has promised us that we can boldly come before his throne and confess our sins and know by faith that he will forgive us. So if you are able, will you please kneel with me? Scripture says in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 through 26, right after it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Scripture says, being justified freely by his grace through through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. People of God, hear the good news. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, The message this morning is from Genesis 2, verse 25, through chapter 3, verse 7. Excuse me. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the very word of the very God. Please be seated. This is a message this morning um, that we have arrived because we've been progressing through the book of Genesis, starting in Genesis 1, verse 1, and naturally we knew we were coming to this place. Um, 
We knew that uh, God had created an idyllic place for Adam and Eve to dwell and all the, all the beasts and all of that. We knew that there were these halcyon days where, that were so wonderful and amazing. But we knew we were heading to this because we ourselves are in this uh, to this day. This is a message about God, the standard of God's pure holiness and His righteousness. It's a message about the nature of sin and temptation and the relationship of a disobedient creature to their almighty creator, God. Until I was 50 years old, I never really understood sin. That I was conceived in sin and born a sinner, that I was dead in my trespasses. That I was miserable in my sin and destined for an eternity in hell. That sin corrupts every aspect of every single human being, body, mind, soul, spirit. Total depravity, right? That sin has put an insurmountable distance between humans and their creator, God. Prior to 50 years old, I did not know that. I might intellectually understand that, that the concept of that, but I didn't know it. And certainly I was not living my life that way, by any stretch of the imagination. And then... When I was 50 years old, the Holy Spirit quickened my heart and opened it to receive the good news of Jesus Christ and what God had wrought on behalf of his elect. It created in me a deep desire for my Lord Jesus Christ, and our Lord never fails to fulfill that desire. I pray that that desire is on every heart that beats in in this room today, in this church. It was at that moment that I was reconciled to God that I came to have a new relationship to sin. It was a relationship that crushed me with sorrow over how I had offended the glorious God who gave himself for me. I was able to begin to see sin for what it is, and God's word clearly demonstrated that I was no longer a slave to sin. Hallelujah there. As I consider the message of the Lord's Day concerning the fall, I want to begin looking at sin specifically and offer a bit of of a doctrinal review, if you will, for us before we actually dive into the verses that uh, I read just a moment ago. Now, sin, when we we look at these things, when we study our Bible, as we're we're in our to the word, there has been many times when uh, when Kay and I have finished, we read it aloud to each other in the mornings usually, uh, that I've had to go back and, and, and look at some things that we've, we've covered. I mean, we're in Deuteronomy right now, and it's an amazing thing. And for me, personally, the fact that I've been immersed in the first three chapters now of Genesis for quite some time, it, it, there's something that's just been driven home to me about um, how amazing God is. You know, there's this common refrain in Deuteronomy that he reaches... He, with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm, we consider God and what he does and what he's done for the people of Israel. So as we look at this, we want to be, when we study our Bible, we want to know what the words mean. We want to we be accurate in their, in their definition, and we want to consider this, and certainly as we look at the Bible, we want to consider the Bible in its entire context. Not, not various things in isolation that suit us. I remember hearing an old saint once say, listen, go back and read all the things you have not highlighted in your Bible. (laughs) The Greek word hamartia, or hamartia, used for missing a target or taking a wrong road. It's the general New Testament term 
for sin as a concrete wrongdoing, the violation of God's law. And Paul personifies this in his writings as a ruling principle in human life. Sin is described in the Bible as a transgression of the law of God. For First John 3, 4 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. As well, rebellion against God. In Deuteronomy 9, 7, we just read that. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been a rebellious sore against the Lord. And the most characteristic feature of sin that we will see clearly is that in all of its aspects, it is directed against God. And this perspective alone accounts for the diversity and the manifestation of sin that we see because it is directed against a holy and righteous God. Now, one of the things I... I do, much to my wife's chagrin, is I, I, sometimes I collect things, and I don't collect thimbles or spoons, little tiny things that can fit in a little box somewhere, but I collect various things. But one of the things I, I have collected over the years are commentaries on the book of Romans and systematic theologies, and systematic theologies are big, thick books. So in preparing for today, one of the things I did is I took all, I took all my systematic theologies out, and I wanted to look at... Uh, sin specifically and I wanted to see how the various you know Bavink and all these other other uh, theologians define sin Millard Erickson says sin is this sin is any evil action or evil motive that is in opposition to God simply stated sin is failure to let God be God and placing something or someone in God's rightful place of supremacy I thought that captured it very well. I'm not going to belabor with uh, 15 or 20 different uh, definitions. But as we look at sin, as we consider this, as we're in, as we're in Genesis chapter 3, in these first seven verses here, um, it made me think of often how we as Christians are confronted by the world. And it made me think about how we're often uh, confronted with questions, why did God allow my grandma to get cancer? Why does, God, why does this good God allow evil in the world? And if this, if this God is all-powerful, why can't he do anything about the evil in the world? These questions, these questions are nonstop. And if, you, and if you're out engaging, engaging people beyond the walls of this church, you're going to encounter that and you're going to be confronted with that. And we want to understand that. You know, God, for people who don't believe in God, God seems to be a very convenient whipping post for people to, to blame him for the, for the ills of this world, right? That's, that's constant. And, and therefore, I want, I want us to understand that. I want us to have that in the back of our mind this morning as we look at specifically at sin and then uh, eventually the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, many are tempted to blame God for the mess the world's in. And according to Scripture, this is just another lie from Satan. And we know that and we understand that. Again, like last week I said, I'm preaching to the choir here. When we think about the origin of sin, the first thing we want to consider, and that we must clearly affirm, is that God 
himself does not sin and is not to be blamed for sin. Period. It was man who sinned and it was angels who sinned. And in both cases they did so by willful, voluntary choice. To blame God for sin would be a blasphemy against the very character of God. Abraham says to God in Genesis 18.25, for instance, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death and the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And of course in James 1, verse 13, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Yet on the other hand, we have to guard against the opposite error here. So God is not to be blamed for sin, our sin. It would be wrong for us to say that there is an externally existing evil power in the universe similar to or equal to God himself in power. To say this would affirm what's called what they refer to as ultimate dualism. The existence of two equally ultimate powers one good and the other evil. If you read, if you read fiction, often you'll see that, that light, dark, this, this battle, and they are equal in power and all that. That is not the case of reality. <laughs> you know, I'm here to tell you that. There, Satan, as we look at Satan here, and we will for a little bit, just briefly, he is a created being. God is sovereign over him. God created him, as he did everybody. We must also think that sin ever surprised God. Therefore, even though we must never say that God himself sinned or he is to blame for sin, yet we must also affirm that God, according to Ephesians 1, who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will, did ordain that sin would come into the world, even though he does not delight in it, or even though he ordained it would come about through the voluntary choices of moral creatures. These are choices. And contrary to what Oprah and Phil will tell you, it ain't your daddy's fault. It's not your employer's fault. We make choices and God created us to be volitional creatures. The origin, the strict origin of sin is a mystery. It's not from God and at the same time it's not excluded from his counsel. Sin didn't start on earth but in heaven with a revolt by spiritual beings. In the case of humanity, the temptation by Satan through the serpent resulted in the fall. And we know Satan is the adversary, the tempter, the slanderer of humanity, the murderer of mankind. In John 8, verse 44, Jesus is speaking to the Jews. He says, listen to what he says here. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Of course, Paul in Ephesians 6 verse 11 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be what? Able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And in Revelation we hear about this dragon, this great dragon and the ancient serpent. As there's reference made to Satan. And scripture as well also teaches us that uh, unclean spirits can do superhuman things, right? 
And they can temporarily take possession of humans. We see that, for instance, in Matthew 8. It says, And when he came to the other side, when Jesus came to the other side, the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. So we're well aware of Satan, and you know what? Satan gets a lot of credit for a lot of, a lot of evil things. However, we should not blame Satan for our sins. For there is a spirit in man that is the basis of mankind's reason and free moral agency. In 1 Corinthians 2.11, Paul says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And this biblically revealed truth means that while a malignant spirit can affect the spirit of a man, it does not force a person to act. You're not going to be relieved of your responsibility you will be, you, God will not deny his accountability of you. The outside spirit gives people malicious and terrible information in which to make decisions, certainly. That's what part of what temptation is all about. But God says they have enough evidence of his power and divine nature to make them, what? Without excuse, in Romans 1, verse 20. And we see another, another portion of, in here in Matthew chapter 16 and 21 through 23, which is very telling as we consider this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. In verse 22, it says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall, ever, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You know, Peter, Peter wanted to appear courageous and brave, and there's no way I'm going to let you do this, Lord. It's ridiculous to consider. Not understanding the mission that Christ had when he came to this earth. When God himself became incarnate and came and dwelt among us. Peter, putting on his cape and thumping his chest, rebuking the Lord. Now, Jesus doesn't mean in here that Peter is possessed with Satan as Judas was in Luke 22. He's not saying that when, quote unquote, Satan entered him, Judas that is, nor was he threatened with possession, but Peter unwittingly was an advocate for Satan's cause. You know, and that's something, again, we've, we've, got, we've got this these patterns in the back of our mind because we do, we do read and study our Bible, so when we, hear, and when we hear these things, we understand that we are we can be susceptible to this this cause this effect on us as well when we sin 
It is not because Satan authors it. A telling, a telling portion of scripture here in James 1, 14-15 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The core problem is not what Satan does, though it is certainly problematic for sure, but rather the desperately evil human heart. Remember, we cited Jeremiah 17.9 last week. And in Matthew 15, Jesus tells us that it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. And in verse 18, he says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. And um, a while ago, I was reading, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, an article from J. Uh, the old Saint J.C. Ryle, and he said, "Let us remember that every kind of the world bears testimony to the fact that sin is the universal disease of all mankind." So, as you, as you all uh, came and joined us this morning, praise God for that. You you get your we get the. Uh, we get our liturgy, and we get our bulletin, and it has the order in there. And I was talking to my wife about the title of this sermon. Wet paint do not touch. You know, and it's kind of maybe a little strange for the title of a sermon. But, you know, I've come to understand titles are, titles are there for a reason, especially like when we read the Psalms. And I suspect, okay, that everybody knows when, when, that what the title of my sermon today, what, the mess, what our message is today, what it refers to. Right? Because I'm going to tell you what. I'm, let me confess something to you or disclose something about me to you. When my wife and I go to, for instance, a Mexican restaurant, they usually flash, they do something to those, and they always come out bringing the plate with a, with a pot holder, Right? And they bring it down, they set it in front of you, and they say, be careful, this is hot, don't touch it. So the, wait, the, the server turns around and walks away, and what's the first thing Uncle Les does? I reach out and grab the, the plate. I've just been told it's hot. I've just been told that it could possibly damage me. It may not feel good or and all that, but what do I do? I reach and touch. Or if I walk down a hallway and it says, caution, wet paint, do not touch, you know, I, I don't care that it's wet or not. What, what, what it is, though, is I've been warned and told not to do something. And I'm inclined to go, touch it. That's, that's the, and that's, you see the point I'm trying to make. Because we're going to see in, in uh, 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 Genesis 3, we're going to see this thing, this forbidden fruit, if you will, and we know that term, we're familiar with it. You know, don't walk on the grass. Or if you tell a child, don't, don't go through that door over there, that closed door, it's going to consume the kid. He wants to know, one, what's behind there and why can't I go in there? And they're going to they're gonna devise all kinds of ways to make, or make some excuse to go through that door. So you see my point. And you know what? We're all prone to that. We're all susceptible to it. We're all vulnerable to that. And it's just a simple thing. Don't do this. This prohibition. The solution is a new and spiritual heart in Christ, right? When we look at Ezekiel 36, verse 26, the prophet says, God says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, 
I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's, that's just amazing. And that's, that's what happened to me at 50 years of age. An old guy. Things changed. It's, this isn't some thing where I kind of start considering things different. This is a radical. Radical. It's the most radical thing in your life. To be born again. Now I want to I look at a portion of scripture because the next, the next thing I want to talk about briefly before we actually get into Genesis 3, okay, is the imputation of sin and the imputation of guilt. And being, uh, being a Reformed church, we were, gonna, we were consistent with what, how the Reformers see this. And for that I want to look at Romans 5, 12 through 19, and I'll read it to you. And in anticipation of getting into Genesis 3, if you have a Bible, you may want to get to Genesis 3 at some point here. But Paul says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. We might scratch our head a little bit over that, but we'll continue. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation but the free gift following the many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act, may, uh, so, so, for as by the one man's disobedience and many were made sinners, so by the one man's disobedience, excuse me, uh, the many will be made righteous. In verse 12, when Paul says, for all have sinned, he's not speaking of personal sins that, have, that we've committed on our own. And certainly uh, we've done, we've committed sins, countless sins. We can't even recall them. I will remind you of, of the one who can recall all of them. Instead, he means that we bear the guilt of Adam by imputation. The one trespass of Adam led to the condemnation of all men in verse 18. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, Paul says, In Adam all die. The word, uh, God sees the human race as an organic whole, a unity represented by Adam as its head. Now that's an important thing, and it's something we all, you, you, you're going to have to meditate and, and go to Scripture about. That Adam represents us, because that's going to be a charge in, in the confrontation that we have with the world. That's not fair. That's not fair one bit. I don't even have a chance. You're going to hear that. The word imputation comes directly from the Latin, and this is, this is rather important. It's an accounting term, and it means to apply to one's account. And expenses are debited, and income is credited. The old King James Version uses the word Reckon, and I love that. I don't know why I, I just like that word, reckon. Maybe because I lived in Texas a long time. I don't know. I reckon. I reckon. 
However, one can be reckoned a sinner without ever having committed an actual personal sin, without ever having willfully broken a commandment. You know, this is true of babies, for many die without ever having made a conscious choice to sin. And I want you to hear my point here, that certainly there is only one born of woman who is impeccable, only one born of woman who did not sin. And I'm not implying that there are people who aren't named, who aren't Jesus the Christ, who didn't sin. Okay, I'm not, I'm not saying that, I'm not implying it, but I'm trying to make this point here. That we all have this sin. It's been, it's been imputed to us. David said in Psalm 51, verse 5, he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. And now people do die because they are guilty of personal disobedience in which no one else shares. When we hate a brother in our hearts, for example, we alone are guilty. Um, but even before we sin in such an individualized way, we are guilty before God. And Paul focuses on the primacy of Adam's guilt imputed to us in the passage of Romans when he says that people die even though sin is not counted where there is no law. That is the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law, when we look at Genesis 3, there is no Mosaic law. It's not that we are sinless if we do not know God's law as laid down in Scripture. For Paul has also said that those without access to the Mosaic law break the law of their consciences in Romans 2, 12-16. But we shouldn't consider imputation of Adam's sin on us in isolation because there's other, there's other imputations to consider. The Reformers, as they preached the essential and core doctrine of sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, and sola Christus, Christ alone, understood the critical importance of the term imputation. For there is a second imputation, if you will, in Holy Scripture, the imputation that takes place in justification. Remember, we talked about this term imputation, what it means. It's an accounting term. And as we have made reference to an infant dying and being reckoned a sinner without willfully committing a sin, let us also consider Christ, who died though he never violated God's commandments. Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, Peter wrote. Yet on the cross, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, The sins of the elect were put on his account. And God regarded him as guilty. This guilt was not his because he personally sinned, but because God imputed it to him. Computed sin to Christ, the impeccable one, the sinless one, the holy one of Israel. And as well, there's a third imputation, and that's Christ's imputation of righteousness to us, his people. Remember back to Ezekiel 36. I will put a new heart in you. An animated heart, a vibrant heart, a heart, and I, and I will open that heart for you to receive the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He not only, Christ not only takes our debit, but he also gets, he gets his credit. We also get his credit, I'm sorry. Christ paid the penalty we could never satisfy. 
But here's the thing, he kept the law perfectly during his time on earth, which we can't do. So consequently, God credits to us his righteousness, and we stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We can say we're saved by works, right? We can. Because we're, we've, we, we, know, we know the word of God deep enough to understand the distinction here. That we are saved by works, and you go, wait a minute, Les, I've read Ephesians, and, and, I've, and I know that we are saved by grace through faith alone, and not of works, so I can't boast. But here's the thing, we don't stand, we, we, we trust in the works of Jesus Christ who were perfect. God, Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. Uh, we couldn't do that. We, were, we, were, we had the sin of Adam in us, upon us. But Christ was impeccable and he was perfect and he, and he did not sin. So when we stand before God and we put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ, when we do that, when he is our Lord and, he, he, and we know that he's our Savior, when we stand before God, God's not going to go, well, what did you do? I'm going, I didn't do anything. You know, I'll be on my face in front of God going, it's all, it's Jesus, and it's all Jesus. It's always been Jesus, and it's only going to be Jesus. And I praise him, and I thank him. I give him, I give him all the glory. So these facts, these things that I've been going over, help us to understand what Paul's talking about in Romans 5. And I would invite you to look at Romans 5. It, it can be, you know, Paul can get wordy sometimes, and, you know, I think of Romans chapter 7, and um, how do I do this and not do that and all that. You've got to kind of sometimes slow down and read it uh, like I do uh, 100 or 150 times. So The history of mankind can be thought of under two complexes, okay? We think of sin leading to condemnation, which leads to death, and that arises out of our union with Adam which everybody is in, Adam, every human being is in union with Adam. That's clear. The Bible is clear on that. But the second complex we can look at is righteousness to justification to life. And that's, that arises out of our union with Christ. That free gift that God gives to everyone. Now, this imputation of guilt and sin and all that, not every, um, not every theologian agrees with that, okay? I'm telling you, you know, the, the person standing here, you're going to hear what, 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 they, what we embrace for the most part. But I do want to acknowledge that you're not, as, as we go out and as we engage people and fellow Christians as well, not all theologians agree with this. For instance, the Arminians would think the doctrine unfair and not taught in Romans 5. But here's the thing, most evangelicals, almost if you're a true evangelical, of all persuasions, you will they we do agree that we receive a sinful disposition or tendency to sin as an inheritance from Adam, okay? But again, we want a right understanding of the word of God, and so I would uh, encourage you and exhort you to study your Bibles, and I'm speaking to myself as well for that. Now, I haven't forgotten Genesis 3, 1 through 7. 
One thing I want to say before we actually just look at the scripture and, and finish our message this morning is that we want to remember here in Genesis chapter 3, and, and, and as, as is the case in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, as a matter of fact, that this is historical na- narrative. This actually happened. This is an analogy. It's not similes. It's not mythology. This actually happened. And we need to understand that, and we need to embrace that as, as, as uh, believers. And we did talk about that last week, okay? So now as we specifically look at Genesis 3, we see that there has not been a lengthy portion of of, uh, time or or, uh, scripture devoted to the creation of the woman and the joining of the woman to the man to where we're at right now today in Genesis 3. There's not chapters and and pages and pages of of description and all that. I mean, we kind of, God sets this up and we know that the, the, the Eden is, is perfect and wonderful. How, what, why would you want anything else? But we jump right into chapter 3 and we see this serpent show up. Now, I talked about, we talked a little bit about the origin of sin, talked about imputation of sin, so I just wanted to just throw this out. I have, I have read the Bible and I've seen like the narrative of Adam and Eve, and I have said to myself, "Boy, I would never do that. I would, I would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't fall for this. What Satan is saying. And you know what? If my wife was being deceived and she was falling for it, boy, I'd snatch her out and I would correct her and I wouldn't let her do that. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, you can't think like that. You just can't. Because then you're then you're like Peter was, right?" Anyway, I want to keep going here, obviously. We, are, uh, we see the entrance of evil in the form of a serpent being used as a tool of Satan. And as we come in here, I wanted to include just include verse 25 because it's, it's at the end of the creation account. And we see that the man and woman were naked and they were not ashamed, right? So this portion that we are in today, we kind of see this bookend of nakedness. And that's not the... That's not the uh, topic or the theme or anything, but it, but there's a huge contrast to what we see in verse 25 and then what we see in verse 7. Verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's why I encourage you, if you're in your Bibles, to kind of be there, because we'll, I'm gonna, in a minute I'm going to read Genesis 2, 16 through 17, that God's actual command... But we want to remember the, ser- the serpent is a created beast, and he's, tr- and he's, he's uh, identified or seen as a crafty beast. And you know, there's nothing wrong with being crafty, but in the context of what we're looking at here, right off the bat, our, kind of, our flags go up, right? So we have these beasts that God has created, but the serpent is the most crafty one. And we've known, hey, watch out, he's a crafty guy. He knows how to get over and all that kind of stuff. So we think of that right away. And the tempter will say in four words that I submit are in principle at the root of every temptation and even often used to justify the commission of sin. Did God actually say? Now, I think if we look at the genealogy, if you will, of sin and, and the nature of sin, we can go back to this, these four words. Did God actually say? As, as the root of any temptation that comes at us, really. 
And here's what God actually said in Genesis 2, in verses 16 through 17. He says, And the Lord God, I'm using the ESV, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now this is a command from the sovereign creator God to the apex of his creation, to the, 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 the one who bears his image. And the devil we see here entreats the woman says, did God actually say you cannot eat of any tree of the garden? You know, again, the accuracy of words is important as we study the word of God and we endeavor to be precise in their application to our lives. Okay? In verse 2 and 3 it says, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So we kind of see that the first mistake that the woman committed here is by is by entertaining what this serpent is saying right off the bat. Now, I don't, I'm not going to get into, well, how's the snake talking and all that. I'm not going to get into that. Um, the Bible doesn't really tell us. And I, when the Bible's silent, I, I want to try to be silent on it as well and not be too um, speculative. The serpent has succeeded in drawing the woman's attention to consider another possible interpretation to a very, very clear commandment by God. There's no, there's no uncertainty as what God said in 16 and 17 in chapter 2. There's no, it's clear. It's just clear. And you guys, some of you have heard me talk about the difficulty. I, I think, for again, the most difficult portion in the Bible for me is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Not because there's a lot of ambiguity in it or anything, but because it's so clear. You know, sometimes we look at things. You know, we read, for instance, when all the COVID stuff was happening, believers were looking at Romans 13 and considering all the authorities and mandates and all that. And, and you know, when we, when we look at that, people who, Christians who want to uh, kind of get around that, they look, look for a loophole in which it's okay for the government to do what they're doing or whatever. And that isn't what I want to talk about here. But that's, that's our nature to do that. God is very clear in 16 and 17 in chapter 2. You shall not eat of it, and if you do, you shall die. It's just no, you know, so now we see, we're seeing the pattern here, and that's important for us, because we, we are all out here, and we are all being tempted, constantly. So we're seeing the pattern here, the nuance, and how, how deceptive the serpent is. Notice the changes here in the woman's statement, okay? Um... They're not as subtle as the tempters, but the woman has compounded her mistake by misrepresenting God's command as the tempter has done. You know, she's changed the words. The precision is gone. The accuracy is negligible. And when God said, you shall die, the woman said, lest you die. You know, there's a dilution there, I think, when I read it. I don't know. Maybe not. But I see see that the, the... the consequence of this covenant that God has made with Adam, I see the consequence being diluted just in a simple word, lest you die. You know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm out of line here. I don't know. But isn't this the most common tactic the enemy and even our own flesh do to us? I remember reading a quote. I don't know. I put it on my computer so I could see it whenever I fire my computer up. But it said, the most dangerous thing in the world is to, treat, to, to teach half a truth. 
And you know what? That's true. And we see we see deception going on here. We we get we get that from the pulpit in some of our churches. Half a truth. Well, that sounds right. Oh, oh, oh that sounds. You know, there's there's this mixture, this amalgamation of truth and deceit, and it's extremely dangerous. Verses four and five says, "But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die.'" For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, here we see the tempter. He sets the hook, right? And we see the counterclaims. They will not die. Your eyes will be open. A metaphor for knowledge suggesting a newfound wisdom or awareness not previously possessed. And finally, they will gain. Adam and Eve will gain what belongs to God. Remember our definition of sin erickson's definition of sin we don't let god be god and that's kind of that's what's happening here essentially satan or the serpent is contending that god is holding eve back and that's a common refrain we hear all the time in this day and age the serpent spoke only of what she would gain and conveniently omits what she will lose And though the man and the woman didn't die immediately upon eating the fruit, the expectation and assignment of death were soon enough, right? And of course, furthermore, being exiled from Eden, being being kicked out of the garden, is another um, symbol of this death that um, they now have incurred. In verse 6 it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So at the centerpiece of this scripture, there's this really rapid pace of things going on. She took, ate, she gave, and he ate. And with that action brought judgment upon themselves and were condemned to death. And when we think about this, we joke a lot about Eve and eating that apple and, or whatever. You know, there's a lot of jokes that go around and kind of, uh, we snicker at it a little bit sometimes, or hopefully we don't. But, you know, there's a long-standing interpretation of why Eve fails is that the crafty beast has deceived her. And Paul cites this specifically in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. says, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. But there's not really there's no explanation given as to what why Adam ate and made his decision to eat. And Paul was really emphatic in First Timothy two fourteen that uh, Adam was not deceived. And he says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So think about it. Eve Eve almost, if you stretch things a little bit, almost has an excuse. She was deceived, but Adam willfully willfully rebelled against God. Just went along with it. Watched it. Contributed nothing to this except to sin and rebel against the Lord. And his role in this portion of the narrative is rather um, understated given the severity of what he did, but uh, he's going to have a whole lot of attention from God here as we continue in chapter 3. We're going to see that in verses 17 through 19. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So we started with nakedness, we end with nakedness. The, 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 the original statement 
that the nakedness was natural and it was beautiful and it was wonderful, and now they're ashamed because of their nakedness, because of their exposure. And we finish with their eyes being open, the realization of their nakedness, and they sew fig leaves together in order to cover their nakedness. And as we go on, we see that their efforts to hide their shame are as puny as their efforts are to hide from God. And it's interesting to consider that any effort by man to cover his sin and earn merit with God is, as, as well as point to his own righteousness, okay, in order to justify himself before God results in the same condemnation that we see our earthly parents uh, receiving here. Remember Jesus said, apart from me you can do nothing. Now, that's, a loaded, that's a loaded scripture. There's a, whole lot, there's a whole lot of meat on that. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So when we think about this, we are all familiar with temptation. And we know that we as Christians, even though we have been justified, we are continuing to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Philippians 1 verse 6, correct? We are not immune to being tempted or tested. I've said that already. So the nuance and subtlety of temptation and how it can be subtle is on full display in this portion, these seven verses of of Genesis chapter 3. The devil convinced Eve of what she lacked but could obtain as Satan convinced her that God was holding back from her, that God wanted to deny her because he felt threatened or whatever it was. And Satan is a created being. We need to remember that. And he is relentless in his, in his pursuit to deny Almighty God. He's a defeated creature, and he's been judged and already condemned by God. But God sees fit to allow him uh, to roam the earth. And God has a purpose for that, and the purpose is for him to be glorified. And you know what? We're, we're, we're to be the salt and light that demonstrates that. We're, we're to be those people. Not perfect, because we already know that we are not, but to stand in faith in Christ and his perfection and what he did. Now, Hebrews 11 and Proverbs 14 tell us that sin is pleasurable for a season. And I, most of us understand what, what's meant by that. And in Romans 12, verse 9, Paul tells us to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. We need to keep a great distance from sin. And when we look at our Bible and as we look at the Old Testament, we know for a fact that Joseph did do that. He, he fled. He fled, to, he fled in, such, in such haste because he did not want to offend God and sin against God that he left his garment with Potiphar's wife, which totally incriminated him, but he didn't care. Joseph's only thing was, I don't want to, I don't want to sin against God. But we see David, on the other hand, David drew near to sin. David was susceptible and vulnerable to temptation, and he fell. Real quickly, as I was put it, composing this, I was thinking about a man I knew at the mission that I worked with. He was an addict. His name was Bill. That was his real name. And Bill was on my caseload, and so Bill and I met uh, a couple times a week. And Anyway, we were sitting there and talking, and we were t- I was talking about him. He was far enough in the program where he was going home. He could go home and visit his family and all that. He was married and had children. And we were talking, and I said, hey, how do you get home? And cause So he, we were down in Tacoma, down, right downtown, and he was living out towards Spanaway. I said, how do you get home? He says, well, I take a bus. I said, okay, because we... 
uh, the mission, we had the, we had the resources to give the men bus tickets. You know, just let them, give them, give them a, a stipend and a bus ticket. So anyway, we were talking about that. I said, well, how long does it take you? He says, God, it's, it's like an hour and a half. I said, what, to go there? I said, what's going on? And he said, well, you know, Les, the normal bus I would take that, it will only take me 30, 35 minutes to get home. He said, that bus goes right through my old territory. It goes right through the old area where I used to sell drugs, where I used to buy drugs, where I used to do drugs. So he says, I take a different bus. And if anybody in here is, has any experience with addiction, you know that there's these things called triggers that we can have. So the familiarity with that area was a concern to him. And I never, I never dictated to him. I never told him, listen, you, you shouldn't go that way. You're going to need to find a more circuitous route or whatever. I didn't do that. But the thing is, over eight months of being with us, eight months of, of, of learning about sin, but learning of the beauty of Jesus Christ as our Savior and all that, be, had that effect on him. And he unilaterally and on his own, uh, own motivation took this long, long route home. And I was just like... You know, in my mind, I'm just singing praises to God. Because here's a man whose family want you know, divorce and all this stuff, who, 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 who just threw himself at the mercy of what we were doing. So you see my point here. You know, we, we don't want to go into these places that we know harbor things that are dangerous for us if there's no purpose in going there. You know, I remember, I, I remember hearing a quote, and I'm going to butcher it but I, because of my memories as long as my hair... But it said, don't go anywhere where you wouldn't want to take Christ with you. You know, it's like we tell our kids, you know, you tell kids, don't, get, don't do anything on the computer that you wouldn't do if your grandma or your mom are sitting right next to you, right? So we want to do that as believers. We need to be, we need to, we need to be strong in that, and we need to be conscious of how, the power of temptation and power of sin. I always love that quote from Jonathan Edwards. It says, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. You know, and that's not just for, that's for everything. Lord, stamp eternity on my eyelids. So, you know, when I look at everything, I want to. I don't, but I want to. I desire to see everything through the lens of eternity. Because, because it puts things in the proper perspective and context for us. And now we consider the very sins that Satan would point to as virtuous. Listen, also cost the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. This, these temptations for us, they, they're very appealing, and they go, well, you know, when we work to justify them, but it costs the blood of Christ to redeem us. And that's a function of God. It's not, it's not that we're worthy. I mean, we're reading Deuteronomy, and we just read how, how God chose Israel, not because they were the most numerous or any of that, but because he chose them. And he, and he set his love upon them. So every one of you in this room here and beyond who belong to Christ, God has set his love on you. Our Lord, who is our God and Savior and King, he was spit upon and nailed to the cross. He saved us by his sacrifice, by his atoning death. He he redeemed us. He sealed us with his Holy Spirit. And as we finish here, we think of, again, the importance of this imputation for the reason of guilt and condemnation in the way to justification, redemption, and salvation. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This should provoke us to wage war on sin and to gain revenge upon sin. 
We so long for the day of vindication. I've been thinking about this so much because of the state of the environment we're in, because of the landscape that God has us in right now. This vindication for our dear Savior, Jesus Christ. And let me close with this. Paul, our beloved Paul, saying in Philippians 2, 10, 11, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, it is you who made our dead hearts alive and opened our eyes to the beauty of King Jesus and his finished work on the cross. And as our relationship with you began, so did a new relationship with sin. We thank you for the light that you have placed within us. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for the work you began in us as redeemed sinners, and that you will carry the work in us onto the perfection in the day of Christ Jesus. In the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Here at Christ Covenant Church, we love to sing the Psalms. We are commanded by Scripture to sing the Psalms, and so as Christians ought, we do. So we just finished singing Psalm 148. Before that, we sang Psalm 124. And now, as we enter the apex of our worship, the point where God has brought us to, to feed us the body and blood of His Son, and we commu- as we commune together with Christ, at this point in the service, we will be singing another psalm, Psalm 100. In the third stanza of this psalm, we call them verses, but... But in the third stanza of the psalm, we read, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. William Keith, in 1561, set this verse and the whole psalm um, that follows that we're about to sing. He set verse 3, and this is how he phrased it. Know that the Lord is God indeed. Without our aid, he did us make. We are his folk. He doth us feed, and for his sheep, he doth us take. William Keith understood the sovereign providence of God when he set that verse to meter. God didn't consult with us prior to creating us, he didn't ask for our opinion or our advice. He simply created us so that he might be honored as he shepherds, feeds, and loves us. Don't miss that. We serve the kind of God who is is glorified when his people are being cared for by him. Jesus told us that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As we come to the table, we are reminded that God in his kindness provides everything we need for life and salvation. Just as Abraham believed God would provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, so we too can trust God to provide for us the lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. At this table is bread and wine symbolizing the body and blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God. This table belongs to Jesus, and he invites all who belong to him to be seated with him at this feast. 
So for those of you who have been sealed in Christ through baptism and who are not under discipline of your local church, come and welcome to Jesus. As we come down off of the heavenly Mount Zion and are sent back out into the world, let's heed the wise preaching that we heard today and not even entertain sin. Don't go anywhere, whether it be with your body, with your mind, or with your eyes, that you wouldn't take Jesus along with you. Now receive the benediction from the Lord. From Psalm 46, verses 10 and 11. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.